The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service. Nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. The following program contains topics particular to the LGBTQ community. Some discussions may contain mature themes. As such, listener discretion is advised. This is Pride Connection, sponsored by BlindLGBTPride.org, otherwise known as BPI, every Tuesday night at 10 p.m. on ACB Media One, and shortly after on all your major podcast catchers. Everyone, and welcome to Pride Connection. Today, we're doing a special training called Fat Liberation 101. So we're going to get right into it. Um, there's no president's message or announcements for today. And I'm welcoming everyone. This training is called Fat Liberation 101, a sturdy train seat at the table, weaving fat liberation into our work. And let's get right into it. This should take... Approximately 75 to 90 minutes. The goals for this for you all are the first goal is understand fat liberation as a movement different than body positivity, self love, body neutrality, etc. Reshape assumptions about fatness, such as myth busters, draw connections between fat liberation and other movements intersectional approach for solidarity and the examples we're going to be focusing on is lgbtq plus identities and disability of justice movements understands that fat oppression is part of black genocide this is with deshaun harrison from his thesis and that anti-blackness is part of fat oppression Find ways to apply our conversation to daily light work, photos of folks of all sizes in social media, on our movement websites. Beyond daily work, how does diet culture and weight stigma show up in relationships with each other? Hey, everyone. My name's Jackie. My pronouns are she and her, and I'm partnering with Destiny on sharing this training with y'all this evening. And Destiny and I are part of a collective called Fat Rose. And basically, Fat Rose organizes fat radicals to basically embed fat politics on the left. So we're contributing to building an intersectional fat liberation movement, um, which is why we're so excited to be here this evening uh, with Blind Pride International, because we know that LGBTQ politics and disability politics and fat politics all have threads that we can weave together and understand, which we'll do a lot about later. And so Fat Rose's work promotes intersectional political analysis that is fat-centered, 
And it also offers incubation spaces for radical fat activists, for thinkers, for artists. And it does a lot of work on bringing fat politics into social movements. So we thought we'd get started by sharing a bit about each of our journeys, Destiny and mine, to how we found fat liberation and how it's meaningful in our lives. So Destiny, do you want to go first? Sure. It started out a few years ago for me when after triggering conversations with family and friends, and I noticed having a visceral reaction to conversations about weight and body. And I asked in this trauma support group, because I figured it might be related back to bullying I faced by a family member. And although I've worked to forgive him and he has apologized, I still had to work through it. So I asked about this and they recommended a book called Body Positive Power by Megan Jane Crabb. You can find it on Bookshare. That led me to ASDA, the Association for Science, Diversity and Health, and also the Poodle Science video. I figured if that was put out by ASDA or someone else, but in my mind, they came up together. Then I started going down the research rabbit hole. I returned to the book, even though it didn't really fully apply to me, but thankfully, um, it referenced that video and it really helped. And after that, I started looking up podcasts. I found She's All Fat podcast, which is about fat liberation. And that's basically, ever since then, it was just research rabbit holes. And now I'm here where I am today, sitting with you all. All right, Jackie, would you like to talk about your journey a little bit? Sure. So I also devoured a number of the resources that you mentioned. Um, but I think my first introduction to Fat Liberation was um, on Tumblr, which is peak 2012 millennial of me. But through Tumblr, I found body positivity accounts um, and feminism accounts and queer theory. And that was when I was starting to figure out my own journey as a queer person and come into my own identity. And the content I was seeing on Tumblr really contrasted with having grown up in a family that was really invested in chronic dieting, in diet culture, and a lot of body hatred in kind of subtle ways, but that were really impactful. And so suddenly I was able to see a world where bodies didn't have to be contorted into thinness, and there were other options available to me. And so that's how I kind of started finding more books and podcasts and other information about first body positivity and then eventually fat liberation. And that's how I found Fat Rose. So now that we've had a chance to introduce ourselves a little bit and share a bit about our journeys, I want to offer some intentions for our time together. So for the folks in the Zoom room and for anyone listening, we want to kind of set some learning intentions together. So the first few that I'll offer are that we all arrive with a growth and learning mindset. So anytime we're learning something new, Sometimes we could arrive at our growing edge and sometimes that can feel like a little uncomfortable. And I want to invite folks to like lean into that discomfort because that's a really exciting space where learning happens. And I include myself in that. I'm really excited to also do some learning tonight. Next, I'm going to invite folks to take space and make space. So at some point throughout the session, we're going to ask people to comment if you'd like to do so. And Feel free to speak up if you are usually someone who sits back in conversations. This is really your invitation to speak up. And if you discover that you're, you know, the first person to speak three times in a row, maybe consider sitting back on the fourth. But everyone is invited to participate. Next, I'm going to invite folks to take lessons but leave stories. So you may learn a bunch this evening, but we're going to leave behind 
any personal identifying information unless someone explicitly says that they're fine with you sharing it. I'm also going to ask that folks trust intent and tend impact. So sometimes the words that we uh, say can have an impact on someone else in a way that we don't intend. So I'm sure we've all shown up with good intentions this evening. And if accidentally we have an impact on someone else in a way that we don't expect, feel free to tend that impact. If someone says something that doesn't sit quite right with you, please speak up and say, hey, I have some questions about this. And if someone says that your words have impacted them that way, do the work to tend that the impact of your words. Next, I'll invite folks to prepare for non-closure. So in the time we have together, we can't possibly do a whole deep dive into fat liberation. So consider this a 101 and kind of an invitation to further learning. I'm also going to invite folks to stay present as much as possible. And we are all humans in human bodies. So if you need to take a break or a stretch or anything like that, please feel free to do so. Um, and finally, I'll invite folks to have fun. And if there's anyone who has an additional intention that they'd like to set for the group, please feel free to speak up now. I have a question based upon what you guys have said so far. Are you going to touch on microaggressions this evening? We will briefly mention some microaggressions, especially as they relate to fat identities. Um, but if there's anything specific around microaggressions that you want to name, please feel free to. Okay, we'll see when we get there. Thank you. And hi, Jackie, this is Gabriel. I'm uh, president of BPI. Thank you so much for joining us and for sharing with us. And thank you, Destiny. Will we be hearing also about societal expectations or societal messaging, subliminal messaging sent through the form of ads or through the form of general messaging? Absolutely. We're going to be discussing what are known as the four eyes of oppression or liberation. And in that mm -hmm. section, we're going to look at all the different ways that oppression can show up in different spheres of the world. And I'm so glad you gave us that example of, of media because, yes, we will yes. Um, touch on that. So thank you for, for your question. Yeah, and just to respond, we're so glad to be here. Thank you to Destiny for bringing us to Fat Rose and thank you to you folks for having us. Looking forward, definitely. So I'm going to keep us moving beyond the intentions, but this is not a closed invitation. If you have another intention that you'd like to set later on this evening, please feel free to jump in and say it. So next, before we move on to some history, I want to briefly offer a content warning that we are going to be speaking about fat phobia and racism and systemic oppression. We're not going to make use of O slurs. So the O slurs are the words obesity and overweight. These are considered pretty harmful terms um, because they sort of medicalize fat bodies in ways that are often scientifically inaccurate, and they place emphasis on medicalizing bodies in a way that is not really met well by folks who live in, in experiences of fat bodies. So instead of using those terms themselves, we're going to refer to them as O-slurs, and we're going to do our best to offer kind of a heads up if we're going to be speaking about heavy content. And if you are having trouble with some of the content, please feel free to, you know, take a step away, take a breath, take a break as you need it and rejoin us when you're ready. So that's our content warning. And we're going to do a brief group check-in to hear where folks are at in terms of knowledge of fat liberation. So if folks are able to put in the chat or to come off of mute, where you think you fall in terms of your knowledge. And the options are one through five, with one being kind of a seed. You're just beginning to learn about fat liberation. You've just been planted. 
or maybe you're a shoot or a sprout, maybe a two or a three who's already growing in your knowledge, or perhaps you're a sapling or a tree, a four or a five who knows a lot about craft liberation and is continuing to kind of put out seeds. So feel free to put in the chat or come off of mute and say whether you're a one, two, three, four, or five. And there's no right answer. It's how you feel you land. Hi, this is Byron. Um, I am brand new to all of this. This is my first experience with fat liberation, but I'm very interested in learning more because, you know, I'm under the trans umbrella of, you know, somewhere between trans and non-binary. And I often look in the mirror and feel like my body doesn't meet the expectations of feminine presentation. Like, first of all, you have your typical stuff, like broader shoulders and thicker wrists and things like that. But then fat. And (laughs) so learning how to love my body and learn about fat liberation and what it means and how that will pertain to whatever transition I decide to go through. I'm very interested in learning about that. Thank you so much for sharing. Would anyone else like to offer where they're at in terms of their knowledge of fat liberation? This is Desiree. I had no idea you guys existed till a few days ago. However, I've been kind of quietly doing my own thing for years because I've lived in a fat body for years and have my own journey and thoughts and how I cope and deal with it, which sounds from what I've been reading since I got introduced follows nicely within fat liberation. So there you go. So nice to meet you, Desiree. I'm glad you're here. I'm Anthony, Secretary of Blind Pride. I am bigger than I have ever been in my life. I come from an athletic. I played baseball through high school and college. So it's something that's always been on the opposite end of the spectrum for me, keeping counting calories to, you know, keep within team weight and muscular fat, you know, body fat distribution and all of those things. I actually came across the term fat liberation about two years ago when a family member who had been bullied for years by members of our family, but it was the subtle bullying, the the very disgustingly quiet bullying. And she disclosed to me at one point how it made her feel. And, and so, you know, we went on our own rabbit hole of trying to find positive for her. And and so I'm so very glad you guys are doing this training. Thank you so much. This is Chris, um, DPI board member. I'm fat. And uh, I, I think I'm probably a one on your scale. When I was young, I had a teacher call me over to her and ask me if I was being fed enough at home because I was so thin. And I went from that to being I'm probably I'm I'm much, 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 much larger now. Than I was then. So, uh, so I'm learning. I'm interested to hear more about it. And I am Gabriel Lopez Cafati, president of VPI. I go by Gabe. I'm very interested in this topic because I think it's all a matter of perception. And I think at some point or the other, we all think of ourselves as fat. And um, it's it's amazing how the media and uh, societal expectations keep pummeling our brains with what it is to be beautiful or fit or attractive etc i used to be very very skinny um i did yoga 28 inch waist etc etc now i'm happily (laughs) and um i think my belly has grown and uh, i want to learn to love what it represents you know what it means beyond the physicality and besides just the norms that are dictated by society saying that having a belly is not attractive or having a couple of pounds uh, extra, 
you need to get rid of them. Um, so I'm very interested in this training. And again, I'm very thankful and grateful for um, you putting it together, Jackie. So thank you again. And thank you, Destiny. Thank you so much, folks, for sharing. I really appreciate that people may be at different points in understanding um, and that we can begin to kind of dip a toe into this world of fat liberation. Um, so I'm going to pass it to Destiny now, who will talk us through some history and values of the fat liberation movement. Hello, Elle. All right. So this is an overview, a short taste. We can't cover everything. So consider this an invitation to future learning. We can share additional resources and our email address after this training if folks have questions or want further reading. Here are some fundamental texts. Land Whale by Jess Baker. This is on the Library for the Blind catalog and Bard, and also available on Bookshare. Fearing the Black Body, the Racial Origins of Fat Phobia. It's more of an academic read, but it's um, available on Bookshare. Fat and Queer Anthology series is also available on Bookshare. And we're working and hoping to get Belly of the Beast, The Politics of Anti-Fatness as Anti-Blackness, available on Bookshare or Library for the Blind. But right now it's available on Audible or Kindle for extra cost. Jackie, I'll turn it back over to you for history of anti-fatness. So one of the most important things to understand about anti-fatness is that it is inseparable from anti-blackness and racism. A lot of the section that I'm going to be introducing now is based on the work of Sabrina Strings, who wrote a book that Destiny mentioned called Fearing the Black Body. And what Strings describes in this book is how fatness was used during the time of slavery to create racial difference. It was vital to the institutions of the slave trade and of white supremacy. And Strings writes that the way slave traders considered black bodies was that they were large and gluttonous and excessive and that black folks were driven by bodily desires such as hunger and lust and of course this is like awful racist rhetoric when we hear it today but at the time folks were using this as a justification for the slave trade and by contrast people saw white bodies as more temperate and more controlled. Another author that Destiny mentioned, Deshaun Harrison, um, wrote the book Belly of the Beast. And Harrison's thesis speaks about how anti-fatness is part of anti-Black genocide. So we really encourage folks to take a look at those works because they are so foundational and fundamental to understanding anti-fatness and how it interacts with and is based on racism. So one example that Sabrina Strings describes is the exploitation of Sarah Bachman. So Sarah was an indigenous Khoikhoi woman from South Africa, and she was essentially displayed as a fascination in zoos or freak shows in Europe in the early 1800s. And Europeans were fascinated by her because of her large body and the size of her butt. And of course, this is an incredibly dehumanizing process for a human to experience. And this continued even after her death because the body was preserved after she died and parts of her body were still on display in France until 2002, which is a long time after the 1800s. But of course, racism is persistent. And in 2002, they were returned to South Africa where they were buried. So she did receive a proper burial eventually. 
And essentially, the reason why she was on display is that her body was used by white scientists, by white European scientists, to make the argument that Black bodies reflected hypersexuality and indulgence. So I know that that's a lot to hold, but it is important history to understand how anti-Blackness and anti-fatness are so entwined. Another important historical piece um, when understanding anti-fatness is even further back with the writings of the philosopher Descartes, so writing in the 1600s. Um, and Descartes created the famous phrase, I think, therefore I am. And Descartes' writing were basically saying that the mind is superior to the body and the body gets in the way of the pursuits of the mind. So denying our bodies leads to greater mental capacity and physical pleasure is in opposition to enlightenment and intelligence. So here we're already seeing these tropes of fatness and physical pleasure as indulgent and restraint as morally good. So this is kind of the beginnings of the tenets of diet culture. And this theory is echoed by Sabrina Strings writing because she says that fatness was seen as self-indulgent and impure. And people began to associate full stomachs with empty heads. So you could either have a satisfied body or an enlightened mind, but not both. And importantly, again, this was gendered and racialized. So men were seen as rational with the potential to exercise self-control over their desires, but women were seen as emotional and at the mercy of their desires. So similarly, white Europeans were supposedly more rational and more controlled than Black Africans, who were supposedly more in touch with their bodily desires, eating more and having more sex. And this was used as evidence that Africans were less intelligent than Europeans. But these are just racist, sexist, fatphobic stereotypes that still are very present in our culture, even through undertones and sometimes explicitly. So fast forward to um, 2016, where obesity discourse, O-slur discourse, is on the rise. And it has become the dominant way of understanding fatness in this country. And this discourse really oversimplifies the diversity of bodies and the reasons for that diversity. So instead of realizing, oh, bodies come in all shapes and sizes, and that's just naturally how they occur, what the O-word discourse does is explain away all fatness as a disease that needs to be cured. And this discourse is really impossible to separate from fat phobia because it's seen in medical and scientific discourse, and it kind of takes on this untouchable status of objective truth, even though we know that there are many reasons why bodies could be fat, and there are plenty of fat bodies that could be healthy or unhealthy, and plenty of thin bodies that can be healthy or unhealthy. And we'll get to those reasons in a sec. And the final thing I'll say about this Oslo discourse is that we see it on an individual level when people can say things like, I have nothing against fat people, I'm just concerned for their health. It's almost as if fat phobia is being masked by this insidious conflation of thinness and health and fatness and disease. So I'm going to pause there um, on a history of anti-fatness and turn it to Destiny for a history of fat liberation. So history of fat liberation. NASA was founded in 1969 by Bill Fabry in Rochester, New York, as the National Association to Aid Fat Americans. Focus fat appreciation membership largely was men, consisted of men and partners. In 1972, NASA chapters were national. Tension with more radical groups wanting civil rights, not a heterosexual meat shop market. Founding of Fat Underground 
by Jewish lesbian Judy Free Spirit and Sarah Fishman, then Alderman, took issue with what they saw as a growing bias against obesity in the scientific community. They coined the saying, a diet is a cure that doesn't work for a disease that doesn't exist. Fat Liberation Manifesto, 1973, no mention of self-love. It's all about systemic oppression. A work still working in different iterations today, including Fat Rose. Fat Liberation as emergent in the U.S. in the 70s and relationship with other liberation movements. Today, body positivity about celebrating body size, self-love, people of all sizes use this term. So algorithms push skinny white women hunched over to make fat rolls visible and does not highlight black fat women discussing systemic oppression, does not center the fattest fats, rather centers small fats closest to conventional attraction. Also, fat positivity, body neutrality, about just existing in a body without forcing toxic positivity, reflection. All right, so now it's time for Jackie to do reflection. I'm going to invite folks to reflect a little bit on some of what we've shared, less around the history and more around your own personal experiences with body positivity or fat liberation. So feel free to either do some journaling if that's helpful or just to think to yourself on the following prompt. How did you learn what a so-called good body is and what a so-called bad body is? I'm going to play some music for a few minutes while you think about this prompt. How did you learn what a so-called good body is and what a so-called bad body is? Thank you for those moments of reflection. I'm wondering if anyone would like to share what they were thinking about. How did you learn what a good body and a bad body are? This is Desiree. 
my grandmother and I was, I think, about six or seven years old. She took me to buy new pants and she was very frustrated and angry with me that we had to go look into the next size, the next section up. I think it was like juniors or something and that she would have to hem my pants. And I got it from there on out from her. This is Anthony. I found out in elementary school, I want to say third or fourth grade, my family wasn't affluent. So we, we shopped at Kmart, we shopped at Sears. Um, and I remember that Sears had differentiating and they had a quote unquote husky section. And um, I was shopping with my aunts and, and you know my family. There was a whole bunch of us and my cousin who was, who was bigger needed the husky section that became a, a tool for some of the kids in school to make fun of him. It didn't mean anything to me until somebody put a negative connotation on it. This is Byron. When I was young, I was always a little bit chubby. And the older I got, you know, my weight would fluctuate. I've done things like low carb and different diets and this, that, and the other thing. And my waistband would either increase or decrease. And the higher the number, in my mind, the worse off I was. And so every time that number grew, 30, 32, 34, 36, 38, 40, I'm like between 38 and 40 now. And it's like, that number is almost like, uh, you know, like using a, using a number that gets bigger and thus you're bigger makes you feel worse about it and I feel like um, you know the clothing industry in a lot of ways they make clothing that will fit supposedly attractive people supposedly healthy bodies but won't either look good or fit someone who is bigger and they don't make enough effort to make clothing that that looks good on bigger bodies. You go into a store and your size of waistband isn't even available if you're quote unquote too big and you have to go to a specialty store and that just makes you feel like crap. So I feel like the clothing industry in a lot of ways is kind of responsible for a lot of this. Absolutely. Clothing industry is definitely responsible for a lot of this. There was an amazing episode of Designing Women um, and the beauty queen sister Suzanne over the years got bigger and bigger and, and they did a, an episode about you know addressing the way you know at one point they have a conversation and and she's like you know when it's in a nice neighborhood they call it something like new dimensions or I, I forget the other the other word that she called it but when it's in regular neighborhoods or poor neighborhoods it's just fat girls or big girls shop here and and it's totally right the the media and and the clothing industry really put a negative connotation on being bigger than what they consider to be the the normal or average sizes. This is Gabriel. And I don't know if any one of you have heard, this was years ago, uh, but I think it's still current legislation in Spain. I was so happy when I think it was 10 years ago that they started. Spain legislated that any models, especially for women, well, basically actually for women, any models who wanted to actually pursue a modeling career and be visible in public could not be less than a size eight because they felt that um, this was having a huge effect on um, teenage and younger girls and uh, was increasing the rates of uh, bulimia, anorexia, and other uh, eating disorders. So they legislated that every woman who wanted to be a professional model had to be at least a size eight, if not more. 
So I commend that and I, and I wish more countries did that. This is Jackie. Thanks everyone for sharing these reflections. I know that it can sometimes be vulnerable to share like where you learned about good bodies and bad bodies and your own experiences of being in a body. Um, so I really appreciate everyone being vulnerable for those who shared and for those who reflected. So much of what folks discussed is actually grounded in myth. There is no such thing as a good body or a bad body. Even if one body is healthy and another is unhealthy, those are morally neutral features. Um, if a body is fat or thin, that is morally neutral. Neither of those bodies is good or bad. Um, and so speaking of myths, we're going to move to a section on Mythbusters and talk through some myths to kind of get under the skin of some of the, the myths that uh, float around about fat. So I'm going to pass it to Destiny. Awesome. The first myth says fat liberation is just another name for body positivity. Fat liberation and body positivity can overlap. They are two separate movements uh, or schools of thought. Body positivity emphasizes self-acceptance, self-love, and an individual chain of perspective. The movement often centers straight-sized folks in its all-bodies-are-good-bodies message or approach to the exclusion of fat folks. While fat liberation can involve positivity and self-love, fat people just living our lives joyfully can be powerful. It is much more than that. It's focused on dismantling structural fat phobia and other intersecting oppressions. Fat liberation fights for access to public spaces for thorough and competent health care or medical care and for dignity and justice for fat people of all sizes. All the self-esteem in the world won't make spaces accessible or fix systemic fat phobia. Myth. Fat is unhealthy. Fat is not inherently unhealthy. In fact, being underweight in many ways is more dangerous than being, quote, overweight or obese, quote, or, quote, morbidly obese. A great deal of evidence suggests that health problems linked to fat people actually a result of dieting and the incredible strain that dieting puts on the body. A recent study found that people who lost 15% or more of their body weight had an increased risk of death compared to people of the same size who didn't lose weight. In addition, fat people live longer than thin people and are more likely to survive cardiac events and not suffer as much blood loss due to treatments such as angioplasty. Fat has even been shown to protect against a variety of problems, including infections, cancer, lung disease, heart disease, osteoporosis, and anemia, high blood pressure, rheumatoid arthritis, 
and type 2 diabetes. Fat people also have lower rates of emphysema, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, hip fracture, tuberculosis, peptic ulcer, and chronic bronchitis. If you're wondering why you've never heard any of this before, that's because this information doesn't make anyone money. It doesn't support the $63 billion a year diet industry or the multi-billion dollar weight loss surgery industry, nor the multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical industry. Myth. Fat is a bad word. It is true that fat is often used as an insult, but this is because of our societal associations with fatness. Many fat activists have reclaimed this word in the same way many LGBTQ plus folks have reclaimed queer. It serves as a personal and political identity. Fat activists also see fat as a neutral word, neither good nor bad, just as a fact. Some bodies are fat in the same way that some bodies are tall. Miss, the BMI is accurate. BMI is racist, nonsensical mathematics. Your weight in kilograms over your height squared in centimeters. First created in the 1800s by a Belgium mathematician, not a physician. He produced the formula to give a quick and easy way to measure the degree of, quote, obesity of the general population, not individuals, to assist the government in allocating resources. Based on the bodies of white Western European men, weight wasn't considered a primary indicator of health until the early 20th centuries when U.S. life insurance companies began to compile tables of heights and weights for the purposes of determining what to charge prospective policyholders. Physicians adopted these insurance tables, especially between 1950s to 70s. Named body mass index or BMI by physiologist Ansel Keys in 1972, he was known to describe obesity is, quote, disgusting as well as hazard to health, ethically repugnant, uncomfortable, and impedes motion, hard on clothes and furniture, quote. By 1985, the National Institute of Health had revised their definition of, quote, obesity to be tied to individual patients' BMIs. And with that pernicially imperfect measurement was enshrined in U.S. public policy.
1998, the National Institute of Health once again changed their definitions of, quote, overweight and, quote, obese, substantially lowering the thresholds to be medically considered fat. CNN wrote that millions of Americans became fat Wednesday, even if they didn't gain a pound, which the federal government adopted a controversial method for determining who is considered overweight. That second change paved the way for a new public health panic, the quote, obesity epidemic. Myth. Health is neither morally good nor bad. It is morally neutral. Often, health is laud as an important personal choice, achieved through certain lifestyle decisions, implying that healthy people are good people. By extension, unhealthy people are seen as bad people. In some cases, people experiencing ill health are seen as deserving of their health circumstances. Health is afflicted by a myriad of factors. Access to health care, affordable varieties of food, life stressors, genetics, proximity to toxic environments. It is rarely closely in our control and is not a marker of choices or morals. When we only focus on science, we miss the voice of justice. Myth. Fat people all have eating disorders, eat poorly, and don't exercise. No study has ever supported this conclusion. You cannot tell anything about a person's eating habits or fitness levels or relative health from their size. People of all different sizes have all different habits, and a quick survey of your friends and relatives will show just that. Myth. Weight loss is a healthy goal deserving of promotion. Intentional weight loss does not work. 97% of diets don't work and they actually cause harm. Intentional weight loss wreaks havoc on the body, affecting everything from the immune system to the cardiovascular system, to stamina and mental health, to stress levels, to body image. Myth. Promoting fat acceptance makes people fat. No studies have ever shown that approving and loving our body causes one to gain weight. In fact, health at every size practices, which include body acceptance, actually make people healthier. Importantly, the way we shame fat people has led to an exponential rise in discrimination against people in the workplace, healthcare, 
and education. Now I'm turning it back over to Jackie for the four eyes of oppression and intersection. And there we go. Great. Thank you, Destiny. Thank you for busting those myths for us. So we mentioned up top of the session that we wanted to look at the ways that fat oppression intersects with other forms of oppression. And as a as a pride group, I'm sure folks are really familiar with the ways in which LGBTQ folks experience oppression. So we're going to look at some of those intersections as well. But first, I want to offer this framework called the Four Eyes of Oppression. And basically, it's a framework that has been developed and refined by many generations of activists of many identities. So Fat Rose does not claim credit for this framework, um, but we want to offer it so that it gives us a, a kind of a grounding framework for the next information. So I'm going to give a definition of each of the four eyes, and then we're going to think of how this can show up in different spheres. So the four eyes are ideological, institutional, interpersonal, and internalized. So ideological oppression is the idea that there is one group that is somehow more normal or deserving or better or more moral than other groups. Institutional oppression is the way that bias becomes embedded in the institutions of society. Interpersonal is the way that individual interpersonal interactions reflect and reinforce the ideas about dominant and marginalized groups. And internalized are the ways that marginalized people or groups take in the messages around them that are communicated by the other three eyes. So for the first eye, ideological, this kind of oppression is seen in popular culture, kind of wellness culture. There's like a moral panic around fatness. There's the striving for immortality almost. And this is like the big overarching fat phobia and weight stigma that we see showing up in society. Institutional or sometimes infrastructural oppression is seen in the ways that there is bias in the medical industry and in insurance policies or doctors refusing to treat patients until they lose weight. There could be fat exclusionary seating in public, like bathrooms that aren't big enough or elevators and doorways that aren't big enough. Chairs are a constant issue. If chairs have armrests, often folks can't fit. Airplane design is a problem for folks of all sizes, but especially for fat folks when fitting into a seat just so that you can travel somewhere is often very challenging. Interpersonal examples, again, that's the way that people's interactions reflect or reinforce these oppressions. So that could be body comments from strangers or diet culture in the workplace or family members commenting about how much you're eating. There could be online harassment or fetishizing. All of those are examples of interpersonal oppression. And finally, internalized oppression, that's one's internal own body hate or body loathing or avoiding looking in a mirror or avoiding being in photos, wanting to be just a little bit thinner, believing that all your other life goals will fall into place with the achievement of thinness. And sometimes it can even develop into an eating disorder or disordered eating. So we're going to look through some examples now, and we want you to share with us where you think that example might fall. Is it in ideological, in institutional, in interpersonal, or in internalized? So here's the first example. Imani has started a new TV show. In it, there's a fat character who acts as the comedic relief. Many of the jokes are focused on their weight and physical abilities. The other characters do not have jokes based on their weight. Where do you think the scenario falls? Institutional. Great. Say more about why you think it's institutional. 
it's a television show. So it's something that, you know, a good swap of the culture is going towards. It's not either of the two last because that, you know, it's either a personal relationship or your own relationship with yourself. For me, I think it's institutional. Great. I would, yeah. Ooh, go ahead. Sorry. This is Chris. I would argue that it might be ideological just because it is one of those things that the full society seems to think that fat people are meant to be comic relief in sitcoms or in movies or in, in other places in the media. It's either, you know, we're either seen to be that or there's there are other stereotypes involved. This is Jackie. Yes. Thank you for sharing both of you. I'm going to give another scenario. And again, tell us where you think um, this one falls. Culturally, the language of weight loss is normalized in violent terms, burning fat or the war against the Ursler or the battle of weight loss, or you shred a workout at the gym, you're getting a ripped body. Where does this example fall? See, for me, it's number one. But if I look at the last example, I could see how they both kind of mirror each other. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to let you in on the secret, which is one scenario or one example could have multiple oppressions happening at once. So for example, in our first one with Imani watching a new TV show, the fat character was written by a person and a casting director had to cast a fat actor to play the person who is being comedic relief. So there's ideological stuff at play, there's institutional stuff of the film industry at play, and there's interpersonal stuff at play of the writer and the casting agent and the actor. Oh, I'm gonna good pass point. Yeah, it could be multiple things all at once. So I'm going to pass it to Destiny to give us a couple more examples, and then we'll guess where they fall. Eliza goes to the doctor for a particular complaint unrelated to their weight. They ask the nurse not to weigh them, but the nurse asks to step on the scale anyway. When the doctor meets with Elijah, the doctor recommends weight loss without addressing the problem that Elijah brought. I think it's all of them. What makes you think so? Well, I think Elijah not wanting to get on the scale is him internalizing it. I I think the nurse was interpersonal. I think the doctor coming in and not addressing the problem is ideological. And then, you know, the whole interaction as a whole is institutional because I believe that most medical institutions, that's their first, no matter what you come in for, like when you're 16 and going to the gynecologist, the first thing that I'm going to talk about is, are you being safe? So that's the institutional part of it. The ideological part of it is the fact that it happened, you know, and, but I do think Elijah not wanting to get on the scale also is bringing some internal into it. Interesting. Yeah, that's a really solid analysis of each of the four quadrants. I'm going to offer that as a fat person who goes to the doctor, I don't like seeing my weight as a number on the scale because I think that the doctor is going to use it against me. So it's less about not wanting to be seen as fat and more about the number on the scale doesn't matter. I'm here for my health in other realms. But yes, I totally hear how this can be an example of all four. I'm going to go ahead and read um, another example and folks can guess which quadrant this could fall into. So Roy 
has been researching clothing for fat men and masks. All of the plus-size stores in the mall cater to women and femmes, and he is looking for stylish, gender-affirming clothing that does not have to be custom-made. Despite being on page nine of a Google search, he has not found anything within his budget. So the immediate for me is institutional. But I can also see how it would be ideological as well. Well, I agree with you. My best friend and I are both are both large people. And uh, one of the the terms we've invented uh, for ourselves is FPC, fat people compliant. And and when we go to a restaurant with those booths that are are so tight up against the table, we're like, oh, this isn't and this is non FPC. I agree with Anthony. It's totally institutionalized. And I've had fat fellows that I've, you know, helped find clothing for and you have to freaking dig and dig and dig and most of the stuff that you find is you know hey let's wear something that fits in and they might not necessarily want to wear something that fits in they might want something a bit more stylish and you have to dig yeah most of the male clothing uh i should say men's clothing uh traditionally uh, i'm shorter and they tend to believe that short people should be thin. And so the pants in particular, it's extremely difficult to find full pants, you know, that have the right leg, the right uh, inseam and the right waist size. That's almost impossible. I always have to get them hemmed. Dude. It's part of the lexicon. If you're a guy, it's you have to go to the big and tall shop. If you're if you're a woman, you go to the stout shop. That's disgusting, but it's layered into the culture. It hundred percent is. Or you can be like me, and I make my own clothing because I don't like what gets put in the store, and I feel very, very lucky that I can make clothing that I like and that fits me well. Since uh, the topic of sizes came up, I don't remember where it came up in one of the shows that we, Anthony and I, have been watching lately. But I, I do remember a group of women commenting about size zero and one of them saying zero what is that like i don't exist <laughs> and i just found it so funny that was um and, and just like that <laughs> just seeing just like that just right now yeah yeah but, but yeah, you can yeah. go but but check it out fellas i'm sure you've heard this you can go to one store like a nordstrom and a size zero means something then if you go to torrid it'll mean something completely different there is no standard size it's hair pulling really freaking mm. hair pulling yeah, so many folks sharing experiences of like frustrating sizing options or lack of options. And this is so gendered. So yeah, there's so many examples of the four eyes present here. Often in the media, we'll hear when there's a character um, who they love to use the word Rubenesque or something like that. They'll drop the line in. Well, in many cultures, especially ancient cultures, big women were celebrated. That was the beauty standard. Do we have any real examples of that? This is Jackie. Do you mean historical examples? Yes. Oh, yeah. I appreciate the question. There's especially um, a statue of a fertility goddess who is just all round and was considered the pinnacle of beauty. I must do some research to find more information about that so I can share it with you. Yes, there is a lot of art. That's where you see it most demonstrated, not just Greek art, but you'll see it in art that's maybe only 100 years, 200 years old, that, you know, it was celebrated that that was that was a thing. And it all ties into history and how, you know, the working class once upon a time couldn't get enough food for various reasons. So 
you know, if you're middle income or above, the larger you could be, that would demonstrate your wealth because you could afford to be fat. So it was considered attractive. I find in modern references that, um, but I find that to be very passive aggressive. Oh, don't feel bad. If people are making you feel bad, you know, if you had lived in ancient Greece, you'd be a goddess. That's kind of how it always read to me. Oh, totally. But you know, it's like, that's great that that was once upon a time, then is how I always see it. I find it interesting in that, yes, this is how it used to be, but it's not the case now. It's not what we live with. So for me, I personally can separate it just fine. And I don't have any notion, any emotional attachment to it other than that's what it used to be. And it's interesting, but it's not how it is now. And that's where I live. I live now and deal with people now. And history does not make me feel better. It's just interesting. I really appreciate that perspective, Israel. I also feel like it's beautiful to see examples of the past and it makes me a little heart sore to think like, why isn't that the case now? Why aren't we celebrating all bodies as beautiful and worthy now? So my hope is that um, some of Fat Rose's work and these ongoing conversations can do that. Please feel free to reach out to um, Fat Rose at fatrose.org. We'll be sure to share this information with folks so that when the podcast is out, it'll be in show notes and able to be shared. Thank you all for having me. Thank you, Jackie, for assisting me in everything. And um, yeah, check out Fat Rose. And I also check out um, the Fat Usual Aid Project is also associated with them. So in future conversations, we hope to bring Jackie from Fat Rose back along with get a conversation going with ACB and BPI. And we would talk about more of the intersections, how we see the intersections with disability justice and um, the LGBT communities. We didn't get to get too deep into that, but that's our hope for next time. So I hope you all enjoyed that. And there is much more. So I can't wait to get another thing going. This has been Pride Connection. We'll be back in two weeks with another great episode. As always, if you have any questions or comments, please hit us up at membership at blindlgbtpride.org. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind Pride International, a special interest affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. Please check us out at blindlgbtpride.org. So